We were young until we weren't, but the books stay the same. Rereading, rereading our favorite books. Hello, and welcome to Reread, the podcast where we talk about books that we read in our childhood and discuss. And today is perhaps our most anticipated episode ever. Not for <laughs> our listeners. <laughs> Anyone but us. But for us, Morgan and me. Because we are talking about the book Mansfield Park by Jane Austen. Uh, which I guess is her most controversial book. <laughs> I guess there's some legit... Well, we'll get into that. But... Dear listener, you have to understand that we've been <laughs> reading this book. Well, I've been reading for like the last month and a half. Uh, <laughs> and we've just been restraining ourselves for two weeks from talking about this book. We are so it's been so hard excited <laughs> to talk about this book. <laughs> well, the number of times that we've just been like, wait, this this kind of crosses over into something I want to say about Mansfield, but I can't say Indeed. it yet. Indeed. Uh, it's been so I, hard. I feel like something to understand about us is that we we are such <laughs> nerdy academics where if we're talking about other <laughs> or just personal <laughs> of course we're going to reference books. I did not read this book as a child, so this is my first time reading it, and I <laughs> love it. I love it so much. Ah, I'm so excited. You know, maybe this is a hot take. But I think it is 50 times better than Pride and Prejudice. I Whoa. love the character of Fanny so much. Ah. This book is nearly perfect. Even the most wretched parts. Whoa. And I'm not talking about the affair. I, I'm talking about Mrs. Norris. <laughs> Jane Austen is so good at setting different pieces up and i've been like playing a lot of chess recently so this is top of mind austin sort of makes these moves that just feel counterintuitive and when i first started reading this book i'm like oh no because we get so much of mrs norris and <laughs> if you're not familiar with mansfield park but you're familiar with pride and prejudice imagine mr collins but like 50 times more annoying and imagine, rather than having, like, two, three scenes, she appears basically in every single chapter and has the most godforsaken monologue in every single chapter. She is just the worst. And you're just like, Austin, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then with just a single line near the end-ish of the book, she redeems that character so f***ing <laughs> hard. I'm getting ahead of myself. I just... <laughs> This book is a masterpiece. Like, it's, I am, am staggered by it. And I am so happy that you made me read this book. Because, oh my god, it is so good. But anyway, I've been ranting and raving. What? <laughs> you actually read this as a kid. What are your thoughts upon this reread? I am, well, one, so excited that you loved it so much. And wow, controversial take that's better than Pride and Prejudice. <laughs> I'll get more into my feelings on all the Austins and, and how they stack up later. But yes, I read this 
uh, pretty much the same time I read every single one of Jane Austen's other books because I just read them all one after the other when I was like 11 or 12. And I didn't know anything really about Austen at the time. It's not like I was involved in the Austen discourse of the day. <laughs> and when I first read the books, Mansfield Park was my favorite. And at the time, I didn't realize this was a controversial take. I was just like, yes, this book is my favorite. And like, looking back on it now, I don't even really know why it was my favorite. Like, I, I can't remember if there was like a real reason for that. So part of me on this reread, because it's been probably close to a decade since I've reread this, was trying to be like, okay, so like, why, why was this my favorite back then? Just because I have, I've reread other Austin more recently. I mean, the one I think I reread the most is Pride and Prejudice, which doesn't actually say anything about, I'm just going to get into the Pride and Prejudice versus Mansfield Park thing now, because I think it will just be, since you brought it up, helpful to get it out of the way, which is that I think that Pride and Prejudice is a more um, cohesive book, if that makes sense. I think Pride and Prejudice is a very extremely well-structured story, about as perfectly structured as you can get. I think Mansfield Park has more interesting academic or like just philosophical ideas. Some of the storytelling choices that Jane Austen makes in Mansfield Park are just absolutely fascinating and just to this day, I think still revolutionary. And she wrote Mansfield Park right after Pride and Prejudice. So you can also think of it as her being like, all right, mm-hmm. I'm now completely shifting gears. She literally says in a letter to her sister, now for something completely different. I think that they're fascinating to think of next to each other. But the point is, on reread, I think that I came to a better understanding of part of what of why Mansfield draws me in so much. And that while I would still consider objectively probably Pride and Prejudice the more, like, perfect novel, Mansfield Park, for me, gives my imagination so much room to to think about things. And I think it allows so much room for exploration. And I'm just so excited to talk about it because I think it's a book that just, like, needs to be talked about. And yeah, I still love it, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> I still love it so much. <laughs> it holds up. Oh, the the plot. So Austin's plots have never been that exciting. A party happens, a ball happens, <laughs> and they walk around in a park for a while. So yeah. And I and I and I think this particular plot is especially I'm going to use the phrase mind-numbing because really not much happens. There's just a lot mm-hmm. of sitting around and talking and a lot, of, a, a lot of time spent inside people's heads, which I think is actually really cool and my fa- my, honestly my favorite bit of this book. So I could see where if you're reading this for the story, you'll be sorely disappointed because there's just not much happening. But there's just something so lovely about getting inside these characters heads especially fanny's head fanny is perfect i mean she's not perfect we'll get into that because god 
do people have wildly varied takes on Fanny. It is Oh yeah. I mean absurd. I was so worried with you because I adore Fanny and I'll get into why later. I think that she was a large part of why I really loved this this book as a kid. But like the number of times I run into people being like, Fanny's so boring. Fanny is a prude. Fanny is like holier than thou. I'm just like, oh my God, leave Fanny alone. (laughs) (laughs) She is, uh, this will be uncovered in our summary, but she's a very passive character. She's a very introspective character, especially when you compare. I think it, it is so interesting that this book came after Pride and Prejudice because Liz, in contrast, is just the most opposite type of character. And it's funny because Liz's most similar counterpart in this book is probably the woman that's, well, I don't want to say she's most reviled because I think it's a lot more complicated than that. But the character of Mary is very much a a Liz stand-in. And Mm -hmm. she she just gets in the end. Like she just does. Well, I guess not everything. She's fine ultimately, but she has a bad ending basically. And she's one of the like primary antagonists, I guess. Oh, but is she? Oh man. I'm so excited to get into the Crawfords. Yes. Another reason. I think this book is fascinating. (laughs) Okay. Let's summary. (laughs) Let's get the summary in again. Get it out of the way. I'm going to make it quick, snappy, not a lot happens, so it's not hard. (laughs) So, we open. Open, actually, on the marriages of three sisters. And these are the Ward sisters. You'll never hear that name again, so don't worry about remembering it. (laughs) But basically, the uh, eldest sister ends up marrying sort of above her station to Sir Thomas Bertram, and she becomes a Lady Bertram. And due to this elevation, her two sisters are also, you know, given more opportunities in society than they might otherwise have. One of her sisters uh, ends up marrying the clergyman at uh, the Mansfield Parsonage, and Mansfield is Lord Bertram's or Sir Bertram's estate. And the other sister, quite scandalously, ends up uh, running off with a man below her station who's in the Navy. And then she ends up just popping out all these babies. Babies all over the place. (laughs) The youngest sister is estranged from the rest of her family for quite a bit. But then, uh, because she's, like, not in the best situation, she ends up reaching out, asking for their help. And eventually, Sir Bertram and I would say and Lady Bertram, but she really doesn't contribute to this decision-making process at all. It's basically Sir Bertram and Mrs. Norris end up deciding to take in uh, one of the children of this youngest sister to raise her and sort of take some of that financial burden off and hopefully give her a good education and bring her up in the world. Now, to say a, a little bit very quickly about the personalities <laughs> of, of some of the people we've, we've mentioned, Mrs. Norris, <laughs> I would say that Mr. Collins comparison, I see where you're coming from, because it's that same brand of just kind of like annoyingly awful character, but she is quite different than Mr. Collins. She's she's a clergyman's wife. She wants to be seen as this very moral character who's always doing the right thing, but she's also like excessively thrifty. <laughs> like yeah. she, 
is not parting with a cent of her own money if she doesn't have to. And she's constantly thinking about ways to save money. And so originally when she pro- she's the one who proposes the scheme of, of bringing in this child and Sir Bertram thinks that she'll be the one primarily taking care of the child, but she's like, oh no, me and Mr. Norris couldn't handle it. We just, he's so <laughs> ill, we don't have the space or the money or blah, blah, like of course I'll help where I can, but, but uh, she has no intention of actually doing anything, but she just wants to feel good about having done something for this child. And then she wants to lord it over the child's head for the rest of their days. Uh, Lady Bertram is just kind of like extremely lazy. <laughs> she doesn't really do much. Doesn't really care about most things. She's very placid, very content to just sit around and stitch things and take care of her pug. And Sir Bertram is kind of what a uh, more stereotypical head of the family would be. He's very stern. He's very upright. He has very definite ideas on the way things should be. And he's not very emotionally open or involved, not even with his children. And he has four of them, a son, Tom, a second son, Edmund, and then two daughters, Maria and Julia. It's spelled Maria, but in every single adaptation I've seen, it's been pronounced Mariah. So I I will refer to her as Mariah, but I'm not sure if that's actually correct. (laughs) That's just how it's been pronounced in adaptations so but anyhow they end up bringing in this child they decide to take in uh the sister's eldest child i'm pretty sure morgan meant to say here eldest daughter because fanny technically does have an older brother Uh, it doesn't matter and her name is fanny price and at uh, I believe 10 years old, she is brought to Mansfield Park and taken away from all her family, including her, uh, the eldest child and her older brother, William, who she's very close to. And she is told that she needs to be so grateful for everything she has, but also it's very much implied and directly told to her that she needs to, you know, not think that she's one of the Bertram siblings, that she's below them, and that her, her place is kind of to be grateful for everything she has. And at first, she's a very upset to be at Mansfield, but she adjusts, as all people do, uh, especially with the help of her cousin Edmund, who realizes how unhappy she is and kind of takes her under his wing and becomes her, her closest friend and confidant. Years go by... Things happen. (laughs) Fanny grows up. Sir Thomas ends up having to leave Mansfield for Antigua um, because he has a plantation there. And there's been some issues there and money's running tight. And this is not helped by his eldest son, Tom, who's something of a, a gambler, just spending money left and right, not being very responsible. So Sir Thomas ends up taking off with Tom to go to Antia. While he's gone, Mariah ends up, I don't know how to put this, um, attracting the attention of a (laughs) wealthy local man named Mr. Rashworth. I say attracting his attention because she doesn't fall in love with him. She's not really interested in him. She's not, like, actively trying to seduce him. But he proposes to her, and he's really rich and has good status, and she's like, All right, sounds good. 
So plans are made for them to get married once Sir Thomas is back. And then... Arrive the Crawfords. Oh, my God. They're here. So, in the years that have passed, uh, Mr. Norris has died, which means that the position of clergyman at Mansfield, at the Mansfield Parsonage was open, and this was taken by a man named Dr. Grant, and his wife's sister and brother are the Crawfords. Uh, their names are Henry Crawford and Mary Crawford. And they were raised by their uncle and aunt. And their uncle was an admiral or is an admiral in the Navy. And uh, their home life situation wasn't great. Their their uncle, the admiral, was just not maybe the most... Uh, well, he ends up after his wife dies, he moves his mistress into the house with, you know, Mary and, and Henry still there. And uh, <laughs> I think that kind of gives an impression of who he is as a person. So Mary, quite understandably, not wanting to to live with the person that her uncle was cheating on her dead aunt with, like, was like, I need to move out. So she ends up moving in with her sister, Mrs. Grant, and Henry ends up tagging along. And they're not country people. Mansfield is out in the country. Henry and Mary, they're London people. They're city people. And they're just kind of like, well, it's probably going to be real boring here, but whatever. But they meet the Bertrams. Quite quickly, <laughs> flirtations develop. Henry is having the time of his life flirting with both Mariah and Julia. And Mary at first is like, well, Tom is the eldest and that is the sensible choice. But she finds herself kind of strangely drawn to Edmund, who's quite serious not at all the kind of fun person that Mary would have ever thought of for herself, but but something about him, you know. The the two families end up growing closer and closer. There are there are lots of shenanigans. They end up going to visit Mister Rush, Rush, uh, Rushworth's estate, and Henry has been doing his best to like keep both Mariah and Julia on strings without them fully understanding he's doing it. And, like, he's pretty masterful about this. But uh, you may be wondering where our dear Fanny is. <laughs> and the, <laughs> the answer would be observing all this. <laughs> she is watching. So she, during this trip, observes the way that Henry kind of plays with both her female cousins and the way that he seems to be, in reality, more inclined towards Mariah, even though she is engaged. And she also sees that Edmund and Mary are—they're uh, developing a little, a little thing. Even though on this trip to Mister Rushworth's estate, Mary finds out that Edmund becomes intends to become a member of the clergy himself, and she's like, "Oh, I don't f- with clergymen." <laughs> and Edmund's like, "That's unfortunate for you because I'm definitely becoming one." I should also mention that Fanny is at this point quite in love with her cousin Edmund. Cousin marriages were a thing at this time in England. (laughs) I'm not advocating for it now, but I'm also not going to condemn the characters for doing something that was okay at that time period. Yeah, this is the early 1800s. Yeah, it was a different time. Yes, we can't just be like, ew, gross, incest, because, I mean, it's not that it wasn't a thing, because they do think about 
one of the interesting things gets brought up in the beginning of the book. I'm sorry, I'm I'm now diverging from the summary, but <laughs> they do bring up in the beginning of the book one of the reasons Mrs. Norris is like we should take this kid in is she's like, but what if one of their you know elder male cousins were to meet them later in life and they're so beautiful and downtrodden and they end up running away with them. And if we raise the child here, then they'll just be like brother and sister. And that won't happen. Irony. (laughs) (laughs) So it is brought up as something to be avoided, but more for the sake of them marrying down than because they're cousins. Right. So it should also be mentioned, like, this is not explicitly said that Fanny is in love with Edmund. You pick it up through context clues. Oh, yeah. It's not that subtle. Like, it's, you pick up on it pretty fast. But I think it is important for the character of Fanny that there's never a moment where she says, well, she would never say it out loud, but thinks it out loud, <laughs> I love Edmund. It's very much something that I think becomes clearer as it goes on. Because in the beginning, you could be like, is this just because they're really close friends? Is that... And then later, the more Edmund becomes closer and closer to Mary, the more it becomes clear that this is distressing to Fanny in a way beyond just friendship. I think that the visit to Mr. Rushworth's estate is the first time where we really see Fanny fully be like, what is going on here with these siblings is not good. And again, Fanny would never say it that way because Fanny is Fanny is very moral, but she's also very quiet. As Casey said earlier, she's a pretty passive character, so a lot of the book is Fanny just watching things happen. She's not the third person that would just come out there and be like, hey, don't do that. Mm -hmm. She would just kind of quietly disapprove, but she's also pretty downtrodden. Like, Mrs. Norris is still on her case (laughs) so many years later. Her cousins, with the exception of Edmund, just don't really think much of her or care much about her. She's obviously Mr. Bertram or Sir Bertram's kind of always been a little scary to her because he's so stern and, you know, she doesn't really have other than Edmund a confidant. And as Edmund starts to grow closer to Mary, she starts feeling like less and less able to say her true thoughts about certain things. And when she tries, he'll be like, ah, no, but there's this totally reasonable explanation. And she'll be like, ah, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> quietly in her head. <laughs> so, Fanny grows more and more concerned after this trip, especially when uh, Tom ends up coming back. Sir Bertram's still in Antigua, but Tom ends up coming back early, and he brings one of his friends over, and they decide to do a play. Lover's Vows. <laughs> I think we can get into this as like a, a cultural thing, but this, I read the summary for Lover's Vows. Wow, it sounds like a romp, but like very <laughs> deeply inappropriate yeah. in terms of like the kind of morals for gentry at this time. The idea of people in an upper class household doing a performance of this, especially in front of anyone else and bringing in outsiders to play parts and do all these things. It's just kind of inappropriate in the time period, especially because Sir Bertram would definitely not approve. So at first, Edmund is the one being like, no, guys, don't do this. But then a part gets assigned to to Mary Crawford, 
where she has to have a romance with some fellow. And they're talking about bringing in someone from the outside to play her lover in the play. And Edmund's like, I can't leave her to bear that horrible pain. So I will take the part. And Fanny's like, um, Edmund? But they try and rope Fanny into the play. And Fanny's like, no. Quietly, no. And she steadfastly refuses, no matter what they do. But she does help out with other aspects of getting things ready for this performance, even though she disapproves. And things escalate. Julia realizes that Henry Crawford is actually way more interested in Mariah and has just been leading her on. And she quits the play in a temper tantrum. And Mr. Rushworth starts getting some some bad feelings about what's going on with Mr. Crawford and Mariah. I have a really bad feeling about this. Poor Fanny gets looped into helping Miss Crawford rehearse the one of the romantic scenes between her and Edmund's character, and then Edmund comes in, and she has to then watch them rehearse it. So she's having a great time. They're all preparing to do a rehearsal of this play when unexpectedly Sir Thomas arrives back home, throwing the entire household into disarray and putting an end to the play. For a while... The, the Crawfords aren't around as much because he doesn't know them. And he's like, I, ju- I just want to spend time with my family. And he's also, you know, a little upset about the whole play thing. But slowly he meets them and they start intrigating, uh, reintrigating. Uh, I can't say things right now. <laughs> reintegrating back into the, the, the family's life. Mariah ends up getting married to Mr. Rushworth as planned. Even though after meeting him, Sir Thomas is like, Mariah? You sure about this? And she's like, I'm sure. And he's like, it would kind of suck to call off the wedding, so cool. Uh, Mariah's reasoning for going through with the marriage, it's so bad. It's so good. It's uh, just uh, bad times are coming. Oh, yeah. So basically, after Sir Thomas gets back, Mariah thinks that Henry uh, Crawford is going to go to her her father and be like hey i'd actually like to marry your daughter but he just f***s off to london mm. he's like it's been fun see ya <laughs> so then she realizes that he was just playing with her and she's like well i'm gonna marry rushworth anyways it's slightly more nuanced than that she does really want his money and that status right. and she wants to get out of her father's household and she wants to be a married woman because you just have more certain freedoms as a married woman that you don't as an unmarried woman. So, but yeah, it's it's just a lot of bad decisions. One of my favorite lines in this book, it describes part of uh, Mariah's thinking. It, it says, in all the important preparations of the mind, she was complete. Being prepared for matrimony by a hatred of home, restraint and tranquility by the misery of disappointed affection and contempt of the man she was to marry. <laughs> oh, just, uh, great, yeah. So she marries him. <laughs> and then she and Mr. Rushworth go off to London, taking Julia with them. Around this time, Fanny and Miss Crawford end up developing this very strange close friendship. 
mostly because Fanny is the only other girl kind of around Miss Crawford's age still there. <laughs> and I say strange because Fanny really doesn't like Miss Crawford, but she also feels like strangely compelled to spare it in time with her and can't really stop this close friendship from happening. I think things are actually warmer on Miss Crawford's side of things because she does, she doesn't think Fanny's super interesting, but she likes her. She thinks she's a sweet girl. They have like nothing in common, essentially, other than both loving Edmund. And, of course, Miss Crawford doesn't realize how Fanny feels. So it's this very interesting dynamic that starts uh, developing in the middle of the book, especially as both Edmund and Miss Crawford are using Fanny as a confidant about their relationship. And Fanny is sitting there being like, I don't want to be here. I I do not want to be involved in this. Please remove me from this situation. But she's like a really good person, and she she suffers through it. Mr. Crawford returns, and since his previous toys have <laughs> fled the building, he's like, you know what I'm going to do? You know what I'm going to do, Mary? I'm going to make Fanny fall in love with me. Because why not? Oh, and Mary's boy. like, oh, that's that's kind of mean. <laughs> and he's like, I'm not going to like hurt her too badly. I just, oh my God, his line. We'll find it later. He has an excellent line about how he just wants to emotionally devastate her. <laughs> and Mary's like, yeah, that's not too much. Okay, fine. But, like, just be nice, okay? So, Mr. Crawford sets about trying to flirt with Fanny. Around this time, Fanny's brother, William, who has since entered the Navy, ends up coming for a visit at Mansfield. And uh, Fanny's delighted by this. She and William have catch- kept in touch. He's kind of the only piece of her childhood uh, and her previous home that she still has that connection with. And he's he's doing well. He's a, he's, he's a happy dude for the most part. He's just like, you know, uh, you need so many connections to get promoted, and I'm just worried I'm going to be in my position for the rest of my life and never get anywhere. But, you know, otherwise, in cheerful good spirits, he's well-mannered, he's fun to be around, everyone enjoys having him visit, including uh, uh, Mr. Crawford, who is Quite enamored with his tales of bravery and, and exploration. And Sir Thomas has really come to see Fanny in this different light. He's quite impressed with the woman she becomes. So he's being nicer to her too. And overall, other than the whole uh, Miss Crawford and Edmund situation, uh, Fanny's like, I think, in a pretty happy place. Sir Thomas ends up holding a, a ball in her honor that's sort of a coming out ball for her. And... There's a whole debacle with necklaces in which uh, William has given Fanny a cross. She doesn't have a chain to wear it with, but she wants to wear the cross. Then Edmund's like, I got you a chain. And she's like, it's perfect. But Mrs. Crawford also, or Miss Crawford also thought about this and got her another chain, which is much more ornate and not really what she wants. And also there's a weird insinuation that like, well, Miss Crawford says that it was a gift to her from Henry years ago, but she doesn't wear it. So it'd be no big deal if Fanny wears it. There's also kind of this insinuation that actually Henry bought the chain for Fanny. And Fanny's like, oh, that, that's uncomfy. I'm not loving that vibe. Mm. But then Edmund's like, so considerate that Mary got you this. We are on the same wavelength. Our minds are fused. And Fanny's like, oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> but otherwise, the coming out ball goes well. Except was, for the part yeah. where also Edmund's like, I might propose to Mary. And Fanny's like, ah, 
And also for the part where where Henry forces himself to like have the first two dances with Fanny and and also Fanny's not a party person. She doesn't like no. attention. I guess <laughs> she has a good time at the ball for the most part though. Yeah, I I suppose it goes well for an introvert. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, Edmund does reveal that he's planning to propose to Mary. He pieces out. There's the ongoing. There's been an ongoing thread the whole time about how Mary's like, I will not marry a clergyman, and Edmund's like, I'm going to be mm. a clergyman, but he's still planning to to marry her. So, hmm. <laughs> so William ends up having to leave as well. Henry goes with him. There's an, a general exodus of men, but Henry Crawford returns fairly shortly after and asks to speak with Fanny alone and reveals that her brother has been promoted. He used his connections with the Admiral, his uncle, to help get William his promotion. And Fanny's like, oh my god, that is so amazing. Thank you so much. I am so indebted to you. I'm so grateful. And he's like, also marry me. (laughs) Because it turns out, over this whole uh, time trying to seduce her, he's actually come to really admire her and respect her and wants to marry her quite genuinely like this is not he is not in any way faking this he quite earnestly wants to marry her uh and he fully believes that she'll be like yeah and she's like you're joking right that was (laughs) that's not funny goodbye (laughs) (laughs) and he's like what (laughs) not the reaction i was guessing that but he's just like oh she was too shocked so he goes to sir thomas he's like i want to marry your niece Sir Thomas is like, great, fantastic. So he goes up to tell Fanny and he's like, Fanny, guess what? Mr. Crawford wants to marry you. Isn't that great? And Fanny's like, what? (laughs) What? (laughs) No, no. It's not true. That's impossible. Search your feelings. You know it to be true. after is a conversation in which Fanny really feels like she can't tell Sir Thomas about how Henry Crawford just totally led both his daughters on and generally instigated a lot of chaos. And she also isn't going to be like, I'm in love with my cousin, Edmund, would also not go over well. So she's trying as best she can to be like, I just fundamentally can't marry him. I'm not interested. I don't want him. I don't want anything to do with him. I don't like him. And he's just being like, He's been so kind to you. He's been so good. He's well-loved here. Who are you? Why are you being so willful about this? Don't you realize the opportunity this is for you? Like, he's a, he's got a big house out in the country. You would be, you would be in a really good situation. And Fanny's like, I can't marry him. I will not marry him. I cannot. Sir Thomas is pretty pissed about this. Very, like, this is. I know for me, this was like the most horrifying scene, just like the way Sir Thomas berates her and just cuts to the core. The only reason Sir Thomas stops is because Fanny is crying so uncontrollably is, ah, God. And when, after you've seen, you know, Fanny be essentially bullied the entire (laughs) novel, by Mrs. Norris and to a lesser extent some of her cousins. You know how scared she is of Sir Thomas. And then he comes in and is just absolutely horrible. He's telling her what a horrible person she is for not 
accepting this man's hand in marriage. He's just insulting her character, insulting everything about her. And Fanny holds strong. She is like, I will not marry him. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry if you feel this way. I'm sorry if I've disappointed you, but I cannot marry him. So basically what ends up happening is Sir Thomas is very upset about all of this. And he is like, well... You're very ungrateful. I'm still going to allow him to visit and court you because I still think you should marry him. Everyone else is also just, you know, as soon as everyone hears the news, they're like, what the f***, Fanny? Even Edmund, when he arrives back, he's he's nicer about it. But he's also like, you should marry him, Fanny. Indeed, it's more of a low-key what the f***. It's more like, come on, Fanny. You should totally marry him. It would be great. And then I'll marry his sister, and it'll be great. Yeah, his his thinking is the connection between Henry and Fanny would... Help his own romantic situation, yeah. I'm going to put it on the record right now. Edmund sucks. I I hate it. We'll save that discussion for later. I have some real thoughts on Edmund, so I'm excited to have that conversation. Because he's certainly not not Mr. Darcy. Although, interestingly, I do think there's some... I'll get into it later. (laughs) You know, Mr. Crawford's just kind of hanging around, trying to convince Fanny to marry him. It's not going super well. But, you know, she's at least softening a little towards him because he's continuing to be very kind and considerate of her. But she's not wavering at all on her commitment to not marrying him. And in hopes that this will help convince Fanny to to take his offer, Sir Bertram is like, why don't you go back and visit your mom and dad in Portsmouth? And Fanny's honestly delighted. She's like, I haven't seen my family in years. I would love to. And so she ends up going back home. But it, it ends up not being quite what she thinks because she's now been raised in a very different style of life. She's used to having different things. And her her dad is pretty clearly like very <laughs> drunk all the time, rude, coarse. Her mom has, like, no interest in her, and she's just this overwrought person, like, dealing with flurries of children who are all yelling and ill-mannered and rude. Fanny ends up being able to connect with one of her sisters, Susan, but otherwise she just, this isn't, she realizes this isn't her home anymore, and this really isn't her family anymore. And at this point, Mansfield Park and the Bertrams are, that's what she considers her home and family. And it is very much a shock to her systems. Quite literally, she starts getting into poorer health because she's just not being, she's not in a very healthy situation. And while this is going on, she's also becoming very concerned because Edmund was planning to propose to Mary and she hasn't heard anything about that. She's been getting letters from Mary, but she's like, oh my God, is any day now I'm going to get a letter that says they're engaged and I'm going to have to deal with that, which she's definitely not looking forward to. She does end up receiving a visit from Mr. Crawford, who comes to see her, and she's actually ends up liking him quite a bit better on this visit. He talks to her a little bit about his house and some of his affairs and how he's been off managing those, and she actually is a little impressed with him as, you know, the manager of an estate. She sort of sees a better side of him, and he's also pretty considerate to her and Susan while he's there, and he basically doesn't remind her of all the things she doesn't like about him. And she's still not marrying him, but she at least has a better opinion of him. And he, like, asks her advice on some things, and she's like, I think you know what you need to do. And he's like, you're right, I do know what I need to do. She's like, 
you do have a conscience after all. Amazing. So the last half of the book was just so anxiety inducing for me. And it was at this part <laughs> of the book that I just felt so anxious. I had to look up the summary of the book because I was oh my God. horrified at the prospect that Fanny would give in. I know if I had thought about it rationally, there's no way. It's been set up way too much. But I just, I just felt so anxious. I needed the reassurance. I needed to know one way or the other. <laughs> I, I can't think of an example of a book that's made me do that before so great job Mansfield Park <laughs> <laughs> good job Jane Austen <laughs> the suspense the suspense yeah it was it was killing me it's especially god because Fanny oh I just the sense of pressure on her is mm. just so <laughs> much there's all these kind of like the summary, we're losing a lot of details, which is natural, but you, what you're missing is a lot of implied threats. There's an implied threat from Sir Thomas that if she doesn't go through with this, maybe she won't have a place in Mansfield Park. And this trip back to Portsmouth is supposed to be that an extension of that implied threat. Like, do you really want to go back to this? Do you really want to be poor? And Crawford does not know how to take no for an answer. Like, this is all a game to him. No means yes, basically. He is that guy. And it's just all of this. I'm just like, no, leave poor Fanny alone. <laughs> and I... Uh, well, and... Yeah. To add a little a little more nuance to the Crawford situation, because I do think it makes him a more interesting character. Like, he is so used to being able to charm women and so used to, you know, people being interested in him for his for his money, for his house, you know, for all of these things. Mm -hmm. That he honestly, he doesn't get what's going on with Fanny. Yeah. <laughs> like, he's, he's pretty confused about it. And so he thinks most of it is that she's just kind of shocked that she hadn't really considered him as an actual option. He doesn't fully understand how much she understood about what was going on with Mariah and, and Julia. So there's this whole part of the great thing about Fanny as a character is the number of things that like, you know, she knows and is very clearly considering that literally no one else knows she knows and understands. Like she is so much smarter than anyone in this novel gets her credit for, which is really frustrating sometimes because you're like, oh, my God, if they yeah. just knew all the things Fanny knows, they would totally be on her side. Mm -hmm. But she's also, you know, not the sort of person who's going to go around being like, hey, you f with both my cousins. Of course, I'm not getting with you. She kind of applies some things with she she gives him some hints, but she's not coming right out there. She's not that person. So for him, like he honestly admires her and thinks she's a wonderful person and thinks that she could help him be a better person because he realizes some of his own faults and flaws. Not entirely. He's, he's still very, <laughs> thinks he's great. But he does understand that she would be good for him. So part of it is that he genuinely doesn't understand where her no is coming from. He also, of course, doesn't know she's in love with Edmund because no one does. So yeah, he, he doesn't understand where that no is coming from. He's not used to accepting a no or even hearing a no 
And he he's really honestly, earnestly in love with her. So it's like this very complicated situation where it's obviously like he should not be doing what he's doing. But also you can understand and somewhat empathize with him, which is a really tricky thing to pull off, I think. Especially considering everything you've seen him do, the fact that Jane Austen can in any way make you go, oh, I feel a little bad for this guy. (laughs) Just a little, tiny bit, is impressive. And yeah, okay, wait, I'm going to finish the summary (laughs) so we can talk about how his whole thing ends. So anyhow, he leaves. Then Phoebe starts getting these really alarming letters. She gets one from Miss Crawford that's literally like, don't believe it. It's not true. And she's like, what? <laughs> Soon it becomes clear that Henry and Mariah have run off together. Mr. Rushworth is suing for divorce. The family's devastated. Tom is falling gravely ill. And he's back at home recuperating. Everything's falling apart. Julie has also run off with the guy that, that was Tom's friend that they did the play with. <laughs> like, everything's falling apart. And she's just stuck in Portsmouth. And she's like, oh my god, what is happening? Finally, Edmund comes to pick her up. She ends up taking Susan with them. Not that it's important, but she does. She also finds out that Edmund and Miss Crawford had a conversation in which Miss Crawford fully revealed to Edmund how incompatible they are by, you know, essentially saying how stupid it was for uh, Mariah to run off with Mr. Crawford, but now they should just get married, and if they all forgive them, it'll be okay. Also, that Fanny should have just said yes to Henry in the first place, and then none of this would have happened, and things like that. And Edmund's just like, oh, you are not who I thought you were. Mm. This is it. I we're done. <sighs> I'm out. And he he really comes to to understand exactly how misled he had been as to Miss Crawford. Happily, Tom recovers. It's also revealed that Julia, who did run off an elope, but at at least she just went off and got married to someone who's vaguely respectable. Mostly did it because she was just scared of what her father would do. <laughs> Sir Thomas realizes how much he's mishandled all of his children and how much he should have valued Fanny, who could clearly see that there was something off with Mr. Crawford. And the novel closes uh, with a sort of a... Jane Austen always does these little sort of like wrap-ups where you find out about what, what happens with all the characters in the future. And it's revealed that Henry Crawford and Mariah don't stay together. Uh... He didn't really want to run off with her, but as soon as he he saw her trying to act like she was indifferent to him, he was like, no, you can't (laughs) act like you're indifferent to me, not when you were so in love with me. So he ends up flirting with her, and then essentially they get into such a situation that like he isn't able to stop himself from running away with her, but he resents her for it. She soon resents everything he's done to her. They end up splitting off. Mrs. Norris goes to take care of Mariah for the rest of her days, and they end up hating each other. Mary, honestly, her status doesn't really change. She's kind of left in the same position she was in the beginning. (laughs) But of course, you know, sans Edmund. And Fanny and Edmund eventually end up getting married and living happily ever after. I will say there is a bit in the epilogue of Mansfield Park that is one of, I think, 
it is one of those bits in the book that has always stuck with me, mm. which is, and I'm not sure Jane Austen does this with any other character ever, but she literally goes, she's like, if Henry Crawford hadn't gone off and flirted with Mariah and that whole thing, if he'd actually, you know, done, gone back to his estate and managed it like he told Fanny he was going to, and if he had stayed strong in his pursuit of Fanny, she probably eventually would have grown to love him and would have said yes. And they would have lived happily ever after. But he didn't. So they don't. (laughs) And it's just this kind of fascinating glimpse. Because the Crawfords really have been the antagonists for the whole book. And it's this kind of fascinating insight into this alternate redemption story that is so teased for him. And you're right, makes up pretty much all the suspense in the second half. And it's just, it's always stuck with me. And I think... I, I can't even say why, but I just, I, the alternate story within the story of Mansfield Park mm-hmm. is so fascinating to me. But, all right, summary <laughs> over. That was not nearly as quick as I hoped it would be. <laughs> I mean, I'm going to quibble with, with that alternative because I just don't think Henry and Fanny are that compatible as characters. Like, I'm sure that if they did get married, they would have made the best of it. Or certainly Fanny would have made the best of it. I I distrust Henry's ability to change. Uh, you know what? Let's talk about landscape design. <laughs> because <laughs> there there's a big old chapter in here where <laughs> it's basically the entire crew gathered together. Of all the young people, specifically. And... It started by Mr. Rush, Mr. Rushworth saying he has this estate and he just doesn't have any clue what to do with it. He doesn't know how to renovate it. He He's desperate for somebody to tell him what to do. And thus ensues <laughs> this. <laughs> it's honestly a very silly conversation and I love it so much. But everybody basically gives their perspective of what they would do in a similar situation or their own experiences renovating landscapes and and working on their estates or whatever this is all a metaphor listener for who these characters really are Mm -hmm. this is really such a big theme in this book there there's a quote that i (laughs) was desperately searching for the other day and i could not find and i thought it was like by the poet Robert Browning, but it's something like, look past the sign to the thing signified. Mm. It's this idea that, read into what's being said. Look past, like, the literal words to what is actually being communicated. So, obviously, this extended metaphor of the landscape design. So, Mr. Rushworth, who is just the flimsiest, most insecure character (laughs) like Edmund has a great line about how if he wasn't rich like if Mr. Rushworth wasn't rich everyone would just consider him a very stupid fellow yeah he's shooting left and right like somebody please give me an opinion because I I can't I can't possibly come up with my own and then you have Mary chimes in and says like I would love to have things renovated, but I don't want to be involved. In fact, I don't want to be inconvenienced 
at all by renovation. I just want it to be done. Henry comes in and he's his answer is kind of like lackluster in a way in that he doesn't give any specifics. It's clear that what he enjoys about renovation is that it just keeps him busy. It gives him work to do. Well, yeah, one, specifically, he loves renovation. I mean, I feel like we have to make that clear, that he loves redoing things. This is a great passion of his. But it's like, he redoes it, and then he's like, oh, there's nothing else to do here, and he pieces out. He, like, doesn't know how to... It's not, like, renovation for him to, like, live in the space and enjoy it. It's just renovation to make it look good. Right. And for him to have something to do. There's a lack of character there. There's a lack of, uh, of an identity for him in the sense of, like, who he is. And that's you can see that throughout the book where he is... He plays the lover for everybody. And there's, there's no rhyme or reason for why he's courting Mariah, why he's courting Julia, why he's courting Fanny, other than that it just gives him something to do. And the, also with like the theater stuff where he has lines of like, I can play any character, which is true. He can play any character. And he he's always playing different kind of characters to get what he wants. Mm-hmm. And there's the the bit later where he reads Shakespeare and mm. he's playing all the different characters as he reads and everyone is talking about how how good his performance is. Anyway, it all comes back to landscape design. <laughs> What's telling is that everyone is so focused like, oh, obviously you have to renovate. Obviously you have to improve your state. The only one who speaks up differently and she doesn't really speak up because she only says it to Edmund, is Fanny. Fanny is the only one who says, man, I wish I could could go and see the natural beauty of this place and appreciate what's actually there in front of me. And there's like lines relating to that where when they actually do go to Southerton, there's a part where Mrs. Rushworth is giving a history of Southerton And Mary is just completely disinterested because she's seen so many great houses. What's another great house to her? And then you contrast that to Fanny, who has only seen one great house in her life. And she is just so enamored, so invested in this history. And there's a sense of awe and gratitude for learning about this place. Again, Look past the sign to the thing signified. What is being said about these characters? Fanny is a person who is able to appreciate what's in front of her and works to appreciate the things in front of her. There are so many times where she could have made the snide, snarky remark about this or that character, but she works to check herself and to find things to admire. Or at least to apologize for bad behavior. Except Crawford, who really, he doesn't have an excuse. He's just, <laughs> his conduct is awful in this book. There, There's really no yes. justifying it. But then that's also kind of like the first setup of how you can tell Fanny is totes in love with Edmund. There's this great line. Let me, let me find it. She regarded her cousin as an example of everything good and great, as possessing worth, which no one but herself could ever appreciate. (laughs) Okay, 
that's very clearly stating that she thinks only she's able to appreciate the good qualities of Edmund. That's constantly reinforced when Mary really trivializes Edmund's worth. Anyway, I'm, I'm veering all over the place. Guys, where are we? The point is that the landscape plays a big role in telling the story of these characters, telling how they see the world, how they see each other, how, perhaps most importantly, they see themselves. Because everyone's giving their opinions and no one's recognizing the flaws in their opinions. No, Henry doesn't see that, oh, it's kind of weird that I just keep keep on hustling without any sense of like anything anchoring me. Mary doesn't see the inherent contradiction to her wanting things to be renovated without any trouble for herself. That's just not possible. And she thinks like, oh, well, the answer to that is money. And, and but it's like, well, if you're falling for Edmund, who's not going to be making a lot of money. Uh, uh, yeah. Anyway, I've been talking for too long. Your thoughts. What do you, <laughs> you take over? <laughs> sure. I love that you were like, we must immediately talk, talk about the landscape. <laughs> so funny. And I will add to that that. One of the reasons where I think I'm meant to understand that Fanny and Edmund are going to end up together is that they're the only two characters who show any appreciation for the natural landscape, period. They talk about, like, they used to do started gazing together and <coughs> Very cute of them. And Fanny has probably, like, the fewest lines of dialogue of, like, any Austin heroine. Yeah. But... Some of her larger speeches are her being like, oh, my God, look how pretty that tree is. <laughs> <laughs> You're meant to understand that she does have this appreciation of the natural world, as you were saying. But to take it bigger picture for a sec and, and to go back to my childhood impressions, I think there are a couple of things that really make the story so interesting for me. One of those is that ultimately it's the story like the, the the arc of this book is people learning to appreciate Fanny, <laughs> which I know sounds simple, but like there's something really gratifying about reading and being in the head, like I said, of someone who clearly knows so much and seeing her so devalued for so long mm. and then seeing in the end, everyone be like, oh, Fanny, <laughs> actually on to something. <laughs> There are multiple um, articles I read about this that described Mainswood Park as a kind of Cinderella story because, you know, she's it's rags to riches, essentially. I mean, not riches because she marries Edmund. And as mentioned, he's not making the big bucks. But there is something of that Cinderella feel in that she goes from being so devalued, so put upon, so terrorized, quite frankly, to people really appreciating her her worth and seeing her as the person she is and that's just really gratifying <laughs> like yeah and i think as a kid it was just emotionally moving for me and i've always felt very like close to and protective of fanny i think because of that and i think the other really interesting thing about mansfield park for me which i don't think i've been subtle about is i think the crawfords are really interesting characters especially contrasted with Fanny. 
for me, uh, Edmund, who cares? The real <laughs> thrust of the story is Fanny's relationships with both Crawfords, because they are such, yes, the antagonists of this book. But, like, in contrast to, say, Pride and Prejudice, where, like, okay, to be fair, Darcy is kind of the antagonist of the first half of Pride and Prejudice, but, you know, ultimately, it's pretty clear-cut who's good and who's bad once that little mix-up has been switched in Elizabeth's mind. The the bad characters are, are just bad. Wickham's just bad. He's yeah. just bad. Mr. Collins just sucks. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Indeed. And, like, the Crawfords are absolutely in the antagonist and absolutely do really bad things in this book. I am not denying that in any way, shape, or form. But there are, we are allowed to see that there is the potential for goodness within them and then also see how they continually choose, do not choose that goodness. And I think when you were, you said you were going to quibble with me earlier on (laughs) the Crawford thing. And I think that the important thing is not, that he doesn't have the capacity to change and he couldn't have changed if he had married Fanny, but that quite frankly, he was never going to make that choice to mm. that. The Crawfords are characters who will continually, despite having the capacity for goodness and for change, make the wrong choice. There is this, this fascination with them in the story that I think is very understandable. I think we're very drawn to them because they are these very charismatic figures, but at the same time, like, Luckily, because we have Fanny, we see them more clear-sightedly. But I think you sort of understand how, like, Edmund gets so drawn in. And you get to feel sad about the fact that they're never going to change and that they're never going to become better people. But also, you know, feel feel vindicated because Fanny was like, these two, they're no good. <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> no one's listening to her. But she's like, these two. And yeah, they do have pieces of like other Austin characters in them. Like you were saying, there are bits of of Mary Crawford that have Elizabeth Bennet in them. She is very outspoken and witty, and she likes a good debate. She's also really judgmental and continually is not morally correct in this way that we get to see like Elizabeth learns to not be so prejudiced and judgmental, et cetera, et cetera. And she starts out from a better place than Mary Crawford, obviously. But, like, yeah. we get to see her evolve, and then Mary Crawford just doesn't. And there's a tragedy in that that I think is so fascinating. And I think that uh, Mr. Crawford, he has shades of, like, Wickham. He has shades of Willoughby, which I believe is a character from Sense and Sensibility. That's correct. The sort of charismatic, roguish figure. And I think Willoughby, if I remember from Sense and Sensibility, it's been a while. That's also implied that he could have grown and changed and been better etc but like again that way in which Jane Austen's like Henry Crawford he could have been something if he had made the right choice and he didn't and he made that choice not to and ah I just I think that they're really interesting from a storytelling perspective I'm not giving up on the renovation metaphor because I think that's such that's so key to understanding this idea of change Mm. because for the character of Fanny, like the whole reason she's brought to Mansfield Park is as basically a renovation project, taking some poor uneducated girl and giving her the life 
of someone in the upper class and transforming her in that way. And there's this funny thing throughout the novel where <laughs> a lot of people are very quick to try to take credit for this either real or imagined renovation that's been taking place with Fanny. Like Mrs. Norse, when Fanny has her whole big reveal at the ball and everyone's like, oh, actually, she's kind of hot. Whoa. Big wow. Mrs. Norris wants to take all the credit for that, for like being the one who came up with the idea and give all credit to Mansfield Park for changing Fanny's character. Sir Thomas is a little more nuanced, but he still operates like he has enough sense to see that some of these qualities in Fanny are natural to her. There's and there's a whole conversation of nature versus nurture in this book. But anyway, Sir Thomas sees there's there's some of this is natural to Fanny, but he still can't help but take credit for providing the the surplus of how she has grown as a character. And then, and Lady Bertram has a very funny line where for the ball, she's like, uh, I sent up my maid to help her get dressed. And that's why she looks so beautiful. Very silly. Very funny. Especially because Fanny actually just got ready on her own. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Fanny did it all herself. And so it's everyone kind of insisting on the first layer, insisting we need to renovate Fanny, her personality, her appearance, etc. And then going the next step of when she shows, quote unquote, these changes of trying to take credit for that renovation, when all this time, these things were always there. These things were part of her nature. It's just a question of drawing them out. And the first, really the one and only character that we see draw anything out of Fanny is Edmund. I guess that's credit to Edmund. <laughs> Whatever. And that is basically the given reason for why she loves him. Right. And why she's so devoted to him is that he's the one who reached out that hand mm -hmm. to her and nurtured her and took care of her when she needed to be taken care of. And by that essentially won her eternal devotion. Yeah. And then obviously there's the Crawfords. There's this great line describing Mary specifically, but it can easily be applied to Henry Crawford. It's just this idea that Miss Crawford's seat has been led astray and her mind is, quote, darkened, yet fancying itself light. Mm. That is so powerful. Like, all their lives, the Crawfords have basically been told through like positive and negative reinforcement because like you said they had didn't have the best home life but they they basically believe themselves upstanding they they don't see their own faults they don't see anything worth changing mm. and i and i think you brought it up the the line about how henry is asking fanny for guidance and fanny is like you are your own best guide and we see that with fanny where she is constantly I'm sorry that I'm really driving this point into the ground with the renovation, but she is constantly <laughs> renovating herself. She is constantly renovating her own opinion. Like, this is kind of why I have an issue describing her as passive, because in terms of outward action, yes, she is very passive. She's the person standing in the corner and just watching everyone else hang out. But 
she's constantly thinking and and I don't really have any way to substantiate this, but I was like making this connection between her and the narrator of this book. You can tell very very easily when you are in other people's other characters' perspectives. The shift is abrupt. Like it goes from being very slow and methodical and thoughtful to like these kind of rushed conclusions, these rushed observations. But you see less of that with Fanny. It, in fact, there can be times where you don't realize that the, the perspective has shifted into Fanny's perspective. And I think that's very telling of the way she's operating, the way she's observing this story. I know we can take this to an academic level, but just on a personal level, it's so nice to see that kind of perspective validated it warms my heart to have a book that says like look fanny doesn't <laughs> really do much but that doesn't actually mean nothing's happening there and you contrast that to the crawfords and i guess this is why i kind of quibble because i i do see the point that the crawfords have potential there's that potential for change there's that potential to do good and they show it here and there and sometimes it's not for the best reasons. Like Henry does his whole thing of like working on his estate to try to impress Fanny. So it's not for altruistic reasons. I guess where I quibble is that like Henry, at least to me, is just such an empty character. Outwardly, there's a lot happening with him. He's hitting on Mariah. He's hitting on Julia. He's hitting on Fanny. <laughs> but when you look past the sign to the thing signified what is actually going on with this character nothing nada he's empty and that's kind of the point mm. in the sense of not just like for the story but for himself like he has purposely avoided attachment because <laughs> he's clearly so terrified of having to nail himself down of of really reflecting in ways that would be productive for him Honestly, very painful. And it is painful. Like we see with Fanny how painful self-reflection can be and how much endurance and strength and courage it takes to be self-reflective. Yes. One of the really cool things with Fanny that she doesn't get enough credit for, because I think people also think of her as passive because they think of her as a character that doesn't change throughout the novel. And she doesn't have a big shift like Elizabeth. I'm not going to try and argue with you on that, but I actually think there is a fantastic evolution of Fanny that kind of goes along with the overarching plot. Because you're talking about self-reflection. And I think in the beginning, you see Fanny is doubting herself more. When the Crawfords first enter their lives, and in the beginning, she and, and Edmund are quite aligned, but, you know, they begin diverging as he thinks better of the Crawfords than she does. And she spends quite a bit of time being like, am I being too harsh? Like, she trusts Edmund's perspective so much. They were, were told that sometimes she's just like literally like Edmund must be right. And so in the beginning, I think you see that even as she she knows better. But like, you know, you see her questioning herself a lot and reflecting on herself and her own motives for her feelings. And I think you see as the book goes on. And I think this is actually what what makes me kind of OK with their romance in the end. Mm is because I think you see Fanny start to realize that Edmund is fallible and trust more and more in herself mm. as she continues to 
do her best out here. Like, this poor girl is, like, trying her hardest to be good to these people that she she really doesn't like. But she's like, but they are being good to me, so I must I must try to be good to the Crawfords. <laughs> and, like, be good to her Aunt Norris and be good to all these other people who she's like, I must, I must try. But, like, you see her become more and more and more sure of herself. And that's why I think the real... The climax of the novel in a lot of ways is her saying no to Mr. Crawford and persisting in saying no, really trusting herself and her judgment and seeing Edmund literally come to be her to her and be like, I think that you should be with him and her being like, no, and be able to stand up to Edmund and say, no, I will not (laughs) and trust, trust herself. Fully and entirely. And it's only because we got the bits in the first half of the book where she, and continuing on throughout, but, you know, I do think it's it's focused in the first half where she's really takes the time to think about herself and, and the pe- people she's with and truly consider the situation before coming to a conclusion and being sure about that conclusion. And like, yeah, it's the exact opposite of Mr. Crawford, who I agree with you. I think he is empty. And I think like literally the book pretty much tells us that he doesn't he's purposeless and that's a huge part of his his issue because you see him being kind of envious of William who has so much purpose because of his job in the Navy and he's going out there and he's doing things and he has a reason for his life and there's some line I'm not gonna be able to find it right now but he's like for a while he regretted that he wasn't like William but then the pleasures of being a like wealthy young man reminded him that he was quite glad to not have to do anything and it's like <laughs> yeah he's he's empty because he has he has no point to his life edmund has the clergy which he actually feels quite strongly about and you know really believes in being able to help his community which you know again i'm not a big edmund stan but i will give him that you know he really believes he's going to be able to help his community mm-hmm. by being a clergyman and that that fills him up with purpose but all the purposeless people in this book i mean we're shown how absolutely devastating that is for them tom too if you think about it like Mm. tom has zero purpose he's also just kind of this this empty character and i think you only see him in the end after he's ill and for a very little bit he becomes more serious and then realizes that you know he is gonna have to take up his father's estate and he becomes more invested in that but and again, Mariah too, for that matter. Uh-huh. Like, she doesn't have any purpose. She just doesn't want to be under her th- father's thumb anymore. Like, she's not getting married because she really believes she'll be able to be, like, a good wife. She's getting married to get out. I must get out of here. I must get free. There is, like, this big contrast between the characters in terms of having purpose and having self-reflection and self-knowledge. And <laughs> you you see that kind of very explicitly with Mrs. Norris, who really does not have a purpose in this book and some part of her unconsciously it seems recognizes that so she desperately comes up with all these schemes to try to reinforce or really enforce her purpose her sense of purpose not just to herself but to everybody else and she's like it's clear that she's looking for that validation and uh, she she epically fails. And of course, it ultimately fails for her because she's one of the few characters who really actually gets a bad ending. And it's like, 
all these people clawing, just struggling to find a reason why to exist. And that's why there's, for the Crawfords especially, such a flurry of activity that they participate in. And I think it's kind of important that we're so removed from that activity for the most part. We only hear about it. We don't actually see Crawford, uh, Henry Crawford go courting Mariah after she's been married. We don't actually see that. It's all just told to us. And I think that kind of being removed from that action, it puts us in the space where we can look at it objectively as well. If we're sort of removed from the charms of Henry, then we can just look at the action of him having an affair with a married woman and be like, that's not good. Not very nice at all. And I think that's like why it's, again, also so important that we spend so much time in Fanny's head, in people's heads, really. So if you see a person who is indecisive or isn't really acting, that probably says something about the way they consider situations. And I mean, it's not perfect. And I think that's that's something we should point out. Fanny isn't perfect. She's perfect to me, but she's not perfect. And the Crawfords are very imperfect. But you can see, I, I empathize very much with Mary. Because I think my brain just sort of made the natural connection to Elizabeth from Pride and Prejudice. And the things she was saying, like, early on in the novel where she's talking about hypocrisy among clergymen, which is kind of undermined because she turns it into a game and she's joking and making making inappropriate jokes. She doesn't realize she's making inappropriate jokes because she doesn't realize yet that Edmund wants to be a clergyman. I mean, I think the jokes are inappropriate <laughs> regardless, but... Sure, but I... Her reasoning is valid. It's undermined by her conduct because she's mm. she's talking about religious hypocrisy and we see we see religious hypocrisy in this book we see with um dr grant who for most of the book is the clergyman at the mansfield parsonage he's not like a bad person but he's certainly not a very good clergyman so she has valid points that in better circumstances if she wasn't conditioned in a certain way to not reflect more deeply we could appreciate her perspective we could appreciate what she's saying and i think that she could have been a really good match for edmund because she could have been somebody who would challenge his perspective force him to think more deeply and it could have been this kind of mutual like the debates between them they're, they were so close to being Elizabeth and Darcy part two. And mm-hmm. uh, you just, you don't get there because unfortunately circumstances conspire to turn Mary into this vapid character who hasn't really been challenged in her life. Like in the same way that Henry has never heard no for an answer, Mary is the same. She's never been rebuffed. Her uh, friends are people who are just like, yes, people, basically. But but you can see the potential there. And I, and I think that's what's kind of heartbreaking. Like there's that final moment between Edmund and Mary. Oh, it's so good. Yes. Big falling out. 
well, not big falling out. They've just had this huge, huge thing. So he's just basically said goodbye and and <laughs> peace out. And then um, I had gone a few steps, Fanny, when I heard the door open behind me. Mr. Bertram, said she. I looked back. Mr. Bertram, said she, with a smile. But it was a smile ill-suited to the conversation that had passed. A saucy, playful smile, seeming to invite in order to subdue me. At least it appeared so to me. I resisted. It was the impulse of the moment to resist, and still walked on. I have since, sometimes, for a moment, regretted that I did not go back. <sighs> Mary, like, there, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of back and forth. But at her heart, Mary is convinced that she is going to marry Edmund. There's just something, like, horrible in that moment where she just, it's fallen apart for her. And she doesn't know how to respond and so she only know she she responds in the only way she has responded to anything, which is by the as they put it, a saucy, playful smile. It both magnifies just like how awful Mary is as a character, but also highlights. And I think this is like where Austin is so good because it's doing two things at once. It's highlighting how awful Mary is as a character because like. This is completely inappropriate. It's like this weird kind of seduction that Mary's trying to do <laughs> at the doorstep. But at the same time, it's you get the sense of like, this is all she can do and it's not enough. Mm. Ah, there is something tragic in that. Oh, yeah. I think she's such more, I mean, even more her than her brother. Such a tragic figure because... I don't know about you. I love Barry. I think she's, <laughs> I think she's great. She's kind of a horrible person, but like, you also she's so jaded and cynical <laughs> in this way that I think you you understand. Like you, the interesting thing about her and Henry's home life, you don't hear too much about it. All you hear is that the admiral and his wife didn't get along. The admiral took Henry under his wing and. The aunt very much took Mary under her wing, and therefore they kind of side with their respective parental figures. And I think growing up around that kind of marriage and seeing that, you later hear Mary talk to Fanny about some of her friends' marriages and the very, again, cynical way she thinks about marriage as this sort of mostly economic proposition. <laughs> and I think it, it comes across, too, in the way that she thinks about the clergy and what she says about the clergy and, like, to be fair, again, she's right in some cases. Like, the things she says about the clergy are somewhat extreme in, in certain cases, but, like, she would be right in, in certain situations. There are clergymen like that. And she's just, like, I think because she was raised in such a way and is so cynical, she doesn't believe in sort of good people, and so she hasn't naturally gravitated towards them because she thinks it's just fake. Again, this is not explicitly said. I'm reading between a lot of lines here. But I think the interesting thing that happens for both her and Henry at Mansfield is because they're taken out of their sort of city environment and forced into this country element where there aren't that many other people around and they don't have any options is they end up forming these connections with the Bertrams where like Mary in particular forms a connection with someone with Edmund she would never have formed if, I, if they were met in London. Right. And I think they pretty much, like, Edmund talks about, like, he visits her once in London before everything goes down and talks about how different she seems, surrounded by her friends and in this element. 
the situation at Mansfield allows them to build this connection, but at the same time, it doesn't allow enough growth for Mary to to truly change. And and like like you said, she firmly believes she's going to marry Edmund the whole time. She, I think, thinks she's going to talk him out of being a clergyman. Like <laughs> she becomes more and more doubtful of this. I will say they're both. They both seem to think they'll end up together, but they both seem to think somehow the other will come to terms with things and that they're also worried about that, which is part of why Fanny ends up being the receptacle for so much of them just talking about each other and like poor Fanny being the go-between in this relationship. (laughs) She's not having a good time. It's so... You really feel from it. And you see her appreciate, learn to appreciate Fanny too. Again, someone she does not form a relationship with really until Mariah and Julia and Edmund leave because then suddenly there's no one else there. But because of that, she is able to form this friendship with Fanny, which is like the oddest, weirdest little friendship in the world. And you really, again, you wonder like, what if Fanny and, and Henry had married and she was around Fanny and Edmund more and had more time and, and didn't go back to London, all of those things. Because you see, you see Mary, I think, even, again, more than Henry, start to shift and change a little bit. But yeah, and that very end scene, oh, it's so... I will not recommend adaptations of Mansfield Park. There isn't really a good one. I especially don't recommend the 1999 one, which I've never watched because they were like, let's make this feminist. And they're like... Fanny is now this outspoken horseback riding in the rain, like wild, <laughs> which is so not Fanny, and I refuse to watch it. But there's a 2007 adaptation with Billy Piper, which is still not great, but has real moments. And they cast Haley Atwell as uh, Mary Crawford, and she does an absolutely spectacular job, absolutely the best, the best character in the movie. And the movie is kind of worth watching just for her. But that last scene with her, like, there's that part even before she says Mr. Bertram, where, like, they've they've just had it out. And then her only response that she could go to, she's like, well, that was a very pretty lecture, Mr. Bertram. And she starts, like, (laughs) harping on the church again. And it's this, you can see her anger still in it there. But she's doing her best to rein it back into, like you said, this sort of teasing, saucy mildly insolent character that she's had this whole time and then that last Mr. Bertram oh it's so it's so tragic and so good because you can feel her like you said desperately grasping for any way to keep this this person in her life who she truly genuinely loves but she just doesn't have the capacity to do so ah it's so good I know I just repeated like half of what you said but uh, it's just so (laughs) that moment is so good (laughs) moments like that resonates so hard because the whole like sign and the thing signified also applies to like the characters themselves where they can only speak in these signs they can't get to the thing signified and i think mary is probably the biggest example of that you see that a bit with henry i'll grant you that but i think mary in particular you get a sense that she she recognizes like there's a scene scene with her that stood out to me where she is debating with herself about whether Edmund is actually interested in her and her going through that doubt, trying to negotiate that doubt. And she 
comes to the kind of conclusion, this very like impulsive kind of conclusion that if Edmund's not interested, then well, f- him. which doesn't get borne out because they still maintain their their connection. And I think that's the, there's a, like a lack of conviction behind anything they're saying. So mm. there's um there's another line. Uh, <laughs> it's a very saucy line from the narrator where it's talking about Edmund and Mary. They apparently have come to some kind of resolution. It's clear they're going to be engaged. And the narrator tells us his objections, the scruples of his integrity seemed all done away. Nobody could tell how. And the doubts and hesitations of her ambition were equally got over and equally without apparent reason. So it's just like, (laughs) which is very funny. But also, I think it's very telling that these two characters are approaching this this love without actually considering it, without thinking through, is this what we want? Are we right for each other? Are, Are we going about this the right way? What are some issues that might come up? Things like that, that kind of just get lost in the shuffle. And it's unfortunate because, again, I do think in a lot of ways they would have been a really good match. Anyone who who has had to go through a kind of hard breakup where you you know it's the right thing to do, or you've experienced the other end of it too, and you've been on like Mary's side, like some part of both of you know that it's the right thing to do, but you just don't want to let it go. And you just you see people at their most vulnerable then. Because that's when people get desperate. People generally are not at their best at that moment. That moment with with Mary in the doorway, smiling after everything that's been said. And you have to put it in perspective. Henry Crawford has ruined Mariah, has soiled the Bertram name and family. This is devastating for Edmund and his family, and she's treating it like it's no big deal. She doesn't... Gah! Oh, let the rage flow through you past me. (laughs) Stick around for part two next week on Reread. See you then. But she caught me on the counter. It wasn't me. She saw me banging on the sofa. It wasn't me. I even had her in the shower. It wasn't me. She even caught me on camera. No, it wasn't me. She saw the marks on my shoulder. It wasn't me. Heard the words that I told.